All right, so today we're going to kind of start from the very beginning. And uh, the easiest way to start at the very beginning is uh, to, to say it the way that the Buddha said it uh, in the easiest possible way. And, and the way that he said it was down to just three words. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And that uh, that's a very interesting concept in the sense that it is uh, Dukkha and then Dukkha Naroda. And a lot of people miss that because they think when they read that or when they understand the teaching of the Buddha, it's more like, Dukkha, 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 more Dukkha, a whole lot more Dukkha. Let's look at the Dukkha. I really understand the Dukkha now. Wow, good insights into the Dukkha, but I've still got Dukkha. And I don't ever go over to the Dukkha Naroda part. And that many people live their lives kind of like that, sort of searching for a goal or the reason for existence or a way to begin to enjoy the benefits of the fruits of all the labor that they put in for their whole lives because they don't feel that way. In other words, life itself seems for many people to feel unsatisfactory. Where a lot of other people, though, have a mixture. Of sometimes they feel really good, and then sometimes they feel dissatisfied. But there's very few of us who feel good almost all the time and on very rare occasions or infrequently we get into bad feelings, but then we can pop right back out again. I think that that has to do with habit and that the old habits if uh, can be changed into new habits that everyone has the concept of me, or I, or I am, and that much of what we do uh, in spending our time in bad feelings, or in dukkha, would be uh, to try to protect the self. But when we recognize that the self does not need to be protected, then we can kind of begin to build up the habit of feeling safe and secure all the time. Because the self really didn't need protection at all. And yet many of us have spent our whole lives trying, uh, we feel under um, attack, and so we feel like we've got to protect ourselves. But rather than thinking of it as just merely uh, building up protection, which is a way of thinking, just building up protection, almost all of us will say, no, I've got to protect myself. That there's a me that needs to be guarded. And that that's basically a way of looking at it is, is that we can either spend our time uh, thinking selfishly, or we can think of our time feeling not selfishly, which could be altruistically, it could be compassionately, it could be with generosity, it could be with joy. All kinds of possibilities are there when we are not trying to protect the self. And so, 
basically, as we begin to practice more and more, uh, and what I mean by practice, I mean basically practicing sati, practicing to wake up so that we begin to see what the mind is doing, the more we recognize that sometimes we are thinking pretty wholesome thoughts. That's pretty good, thinking about the Dhamma, thinking about uh, 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 the welfare of my friends, etc. Or I can think uh, and have thoughts that are not comfortable, things that I want to do over for, things that I, I'm not satisfied with, and so I'm spending my time trying to solve problems that I actually created in my own mind while feeling bad. Well, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but we spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, I think, in fact, a lot of it has to do uh, with with some of this stuff coming up on the Internet now uh, is part of this uh, equation that we're uh, or this system that we're talking about. But it can be seen manifest in the sense that um, someone, person A, will say something derogatory to person B. And then you can see when, when person B reads that, then they'll say something derogatory back, and then maybe later, hours later, they'll come back and say something even more derogatory. You can imagine that they've been spending their time thinking about that. We don't let things go when we have been attacked. When we feel that we have been attacked, um, generally it doesn't even matter whether it's true or not. We begin to feel I've got to protect myself, and so we go into argumentative uh, mode. Now, polite society says, no, let's not go there. Let's not bring up that topic. But now the Internet almost has no social boundaries anymore. It's almost like open warfare. Yeah. Uh, even on Buddhist groups, you'd think that the Buddhist groups would get a load of, let's get along and cooperate with each other and find something familiar to deal with. Instead, we're out after each other, sometimes by the throat. <laughs> it's just amazing. So, anyway, getting back to this one point of dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, the real way of looking at it is, is to see the Dukkha right when it occurs, right here, right now, and then come out of it, right now. It's almost like, um, have you ever heard of the game of hot potato? Um, I guess so. Uh, basically, you get a group of children in a circle, and... Uh, their job is to catch the hot potato, but they don't want to hold it too long because it's hot, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of the hot potato is, is that you keep passing it around because nobody wants to get stuck with it. So now imagine that you've got a hot potato or worse still a hot coal in your hand, right? The hand itself is going to throw that coal out. The hand itself knows the dukkha before even the mind does. 
that the hand doesn't even start hurting until perhaps, in fact, we, uh, we get a load of it visually and see what damage my hand has had. Okay? Start to care for it. But the hand itself threw the stone off or threw the potato out. So there's something really automatic down deep within us that we call the reptilian brain. Mm. And that this reptilian brain that we have is our automatic system. So imagine that an alligator, because in fact the alligator brain is very, very similar in structure to this part of the brain that, that's in the, the human anatomy, so much so that a hundred years ago it got the name reptilian brain. And so you can look at it this way. Anything that an alligator can do that you can do, you do that with your reptilian brain. But there's a whole lot of stuff that reptiles can't do. One of them is language and socializing and things like that, that the alligators abandon their eggs when they're born. Or not even before they're born. They're, they, they abandon the egg as it's laid. But we have higher things going on up into the mammalian range. But then we also have higher, like language. We also have even higher stuff like that, and that is the ability to see straight, the human part of the brain. And so, in fact, we have three layers of brain in there. The old reptilian brain that uh, psychologists call in, in fact, the two psychologists in particular is uh, Sigmund Freud called it uh, the id. And that the uh, Eric Byrne in trans transactional analysis, they call that the, the child. And that this reptilian brain is, in fact, the source of all of our feelings. All of the feelings, including feeling good and feeling bad. So we can't say I'm going to just cut off the, the, the child ego state or throw it out. Because that's in fact the source of all of our suffering and all of our joy. Just like the reptiles can feel pain and feel pleasure. So that's the source of it for us. But we don't want the, um, the situation such that this reptilian part of the brain gets too much burdened with the society that we have built up. Because that society that we carry within our brain, the way to do things, the way to live, the way that we're supposed to be, and all of that kind of stuff is actually learned behavior. So you could say the reptilian brain is more like uh, nature, and then uh, uh, this higher part of the brain is called the nurture, and that this is what Sigmund Freud called the superego, and what Eric Byrne called the parent ego state, and this is what uh, the Buddha called uh, Silabhata Paramasa, which means our attachments uh, to the ways that we do things, all of society, including you probably imagined for yourself or you've experienced that you've got one thing in your brain, one kind of thought saying you ought to go do this. And another part of the mind or the answer to that is no, I don't want to do that. 
okay? And so that's the dialogue then between the parent and the child, or between the superego and the id. But there is the third ego state, and that is the frontal cortex part of the brain, the human part of the brain that Byrne calls the adult, and Sigmund Freud calls actually this is the ego. And yet we, uh, in our society, have really messed up with that word ego in the sense of egotistical. A better way of saying it would be egotistical <laughs> rather than ego, or egotistical rather than egotistical, because in fact the ego in that regard, or the adult, is our ability to think and see straight. So that this part of the brain then can guide the, uh, the id, so that we can direct it into feeling good and feeling comfortable and feeling happy, rather than allowing the society's old learned behaviors, all of our rights, rules, rituals, and things that we keep telling ourselves, that make ourselves feel bad, the standards that we don't meet up to, etc. All of that kind of stuff is uh, making the child feel bad. Just like we as children, when we are children and the children are playing amongst themselves, they have a ball, generally. <laughs> Not all the time. But when the adult comes in, things have to change. Things got to serious up. Grim up, folks. Adults in the room, you know, that's the way that it kind of uh, uh, comes. And so we build up our own um, parent in the head. All right. So we need to start paying attention to the kind of dialogues that we have inside that actually are not pleasant. They're suffering. They're not wholesome thoughts. All right, so this is a way of starting uh, off with the idea of the parent, the adult, the child. The Buddha actually knew about these, but he didn't reference it in, in that way. But you can see direct evidence of this. What sati is, is literally the let's wake up and start thinking with the frontal cortex, rather than either through our verbalization or into our feeling state that we're in fact going to learn to control the mind, and who's going to be the controller is the frontal cortex, the wisdom part, that which can see, because it's going to continue to look. And this is a very scientific way of explaining how this practice of Anapanasati, that the Buddha didn't have this, un this direct uh, way of looking at it, but he certainly knew what was going on in the mind, and he described that through this system that he called Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And that the Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda breaks into the Four Noble Truths directly. You can see that, in fact, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, there is, in fact, Many students misunderstand the first noble truth in, in the following way, that uh, the job of understanding or the reason why this is in fact the first noble truth 
is because that's the primary job is to be able to see it, to recognize it, to know what is unpleasant and what is pleasant. Because until we're fully knowledgeable about that, we will still blunder around causing ourselves difficulties and suffering because we didn't see what we were doing. And so a lot of the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha, and we'll go through uh, quite a cadre of that, uh, is, is basically to wake up and see the dukkha. An example of that would be uh, on walking meditations of going barefoot. Why would you go barefoot? It's because now you have to watch where you're stepping. You see, if we're wearing shoes, then we don't quite watch where we're going. We just go where we want to go and uh, not pay attention much. But if you go out barefoot, you're going to actually learn to watch and look. And the better you get at it, the further ahead you can look about where you're going to put your feet until it becomes almost automatic. But not when people wear shoes most of the time. Because now... We don't have to think about the feet. But there's a whole process of learning through to see. So an analogy of that would be um, walking down to the, um, uh, through the cow pasture. And the cows are at the, uh, the other side of the pasture. And so our job is to go down, whatever we're going to do, to go down to see the cows. But we can't keep our eye on the cows. We've got to keep our eyes on the ground. We've got to watch where we're going because the whole place is covered with cow pipes. All right. So we can actually think of our whole lives like that. Is here we are, barefoot in a marvelous pasture. And all we have to do is watch where we're going. <laughs> watch every step. And so that's the basic uh, way of looking at the whole Dharma, is to see the cow pies, to see where we're stepping. Except that we're taking that analogy off of the physical ground and put it into the real ground uh, where, uh, let's say, other kinds of smelly cow pies exist. So, um, the second noble truth is in fact the cause of these cow pies. Where do the cow pies come from? The answer is um, quite a depth of, of understanding because in fact this will lead the meditation student all the way into the study of how the mind works, how it operates. That this is where we understand how things are really tied together and the, this teaching that I'm mentioning now is Paticca Samuppada, and we'll talk about it later, but it's basically the steps and sequence of events that wind the, uh, the human being up in, into a woeful state, into a state of unpleasantness, and uh, in a way the reptilian brain or this child ego state is unhappy and suffering. An example of that would be angry. Or, or fearful, or uh, sad, or jealous, or uh, grief, or frustration. These are the kinds of feelings that we are capable of, but we actually spend 
most of the time when we do spend our time in those feelings, we do so inappropriately. We spend too much time in those feelings to where the other side, the other kind of feelings that we could experience would be the feelings of satisfaction, joy, friendship, security and safety, contentment, relaxation, okay? These are the kind of feelings that we want to cultivate and develop intentionally. Why? Because we have cultivated the other levels of uh, feeling unintentionally. But we've cultivated them and made them part of our habits so that when something, I don't even know what it is, an example of something happens and we really have a choice to feel either good about it or to feel bad and almost everybody chooses to feel bad instead. Actually, I can think of a dozens and dozens of examples of that, but you can figure that out one too. That why, uh, when something happens, that so many people feel bad when in fact it's a very good thing that happens. Part of the reason is because we're in the habit of feeling bad, and so we look at things and we feel fault, but find fault with things, and nothing is ever good enough. And so we're in the habit of seeing things as not ever good enough rather than developing the, the, and cultivating the habit of seeing things, in fact, good enough. Things are good enough as they are. And when things are good enough as they are, that means that you're satisfying, that, that we feel secure. And to not only that, but we can also see that we've made a choice between feeling bad and feeling good. And that's when we can congratulate ourselves. And that's when that um, quality of um, <clears throat> right attitude comes into play. Okay? So, it basically what we're saying is, is that yes, there is a cause of suffering, and it is well known by the Buddha and well documented in psychology, but that the problem is, is not that we cannot see dukkha, is that we can see some of it and can't get out of it, and there's a whole lot of it that we don't even see, and so how possibly could we get out of that? The answer is, both in both cases, when we start to pay attention closely and see the dukkha directly, we begin to see it almost like that hot potato, and we drop it! <laughs> <laughs> But we have to see it as dukkha. Once we see it as dukkha, that's the easy part to see, uh, because then the letting go of it is, is easy enough to do. And so by letting go of that hot coal or hot potato, now we're relieved of it. And this is the third noble truth, freedom from suffering. Once we see the dukkha, we can immediately go into dukkha naroda. Now, just because that I'm telling you that this is possible doesn't mean that anyone can say, just wake right up, okay, I got it. All right, I see that there are problems that I caused myself. I can see why I caused those problems, and I can see that I can immediately get out of it. Now, so what? 
this is where the fourth noble truth comes in, and that is we've got a method. <laughs> we've got a we've got a procedure, and that procedure, uh, when uh, an individual human operates within the guidelines of this little procedure, and it's not very much of a procedure, it's very small. In fact, that's what makes it so beautiful, that it's small and tight. Now, when many people get introduced to Buddhism, it looks vast. Wow, vast, not only vast, but it's so vast that even the old guys knew it was vast, and that's why they put everything to numbers. And so we have five of that and four of those and four more of those things and five of this and nine of those and 12 of this thing and 16 of that and three of these and four of those again and five of those <laughs> and it just keeps going on and on. But basically what we're talking about is imagine a, a multi-storied, multi-windowed building and that we're in a helicopter and we're flying around to that building and we're getting a whole lot of different viewpoints with all, and I say, I see 16 of those and I see eight of those. But later we can begin to, wait a minute, I've been looking through the window into this thing and I'm actually seeing the same things over and over again from different angles. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, it's very simple. And so let's start simple. Dukkha, dukkha, naroda. That's all there is to it. That should be simple enough. <laughs> okay, so let's look at this path or this method that we have. In fact, the word path is probably not a good idea because when we hear the word path, it looks like a lane or um, uh, a place where it's easy to walk where the animals have been. Maybe there's no grass there. Um, a path that we walk down. But this is not really that kind of a path. This is more um, a, a method or a way of doing things or um, let us call it a transport system in the sense that this is how we, uh, the method that we're going to use to live our lives. And so getting off the path which would mean, mean getting into the ditch, actually means going outside of the boundaries that keep us safe and secure, and we wind up in dukkha. And so we learn to control it so that we can maintain a, a lifestyle so that we're free from dissatisfaction. But we need a method for doing that. And the Buddha's got one. In fact, they call it the Eightfold Noble Path, but from the beginning, I'm going to break it down in, in a different kind of way than it's normally taught. Normally, when it's taught, they go for Sila Samati Panya, and there are three items of Sila, and that they start with Sila because that's how we start with children. But if you'll remember referring back to Sila Bhatta Paramatha, and understand that when we give children a set of rules to live by, we're actually causing a problem with that child by telling him, you've got to do it this way, do it my way, see, 
you got to follow the rule because the adult has the opinion that the child is not wise enough to figure it out for himself, so we impose rules. When these rules become formalized, they become what is in Buddhism called the five precepts. The five precepts are actually, this is how you should behave when you know how to behave. And you should know at least enough about how to behave so that you behave at least within this guideline, and yet most people don't, even with the Buddhist. Okay. However, there's another way of looking at Sila, and we'll talk about that as the outcome rather than as the starting point. Because the real process is to get the mind clean and pure and bright and unified. This is what the word samati means. It doesn't mean concentrating. It means unified. And so let's look at the, uh, the factors that we need to develop to bring the mind into a state of unification. And these are the real items of the path. So we actually break it down into four, one, and three, rather than two, three, and three, the way that it's normally broken down. Okay, one, four, and three. The one, four, and three, the one is, in fact, the unification of mind when everything gets together. Let's look at the four. The four, in fact, the way that it all gets started and the one that's the most important is right view. And as our view becomes more noble, then it becomes noble right view and only at that time is the student now on the noble path. Everybody starts off on an ordinary path, but then they gain nobility. And what is the nobility? And that is the full understanding of the path or the method. In other words, there's the beginning person. Like if, if the issue is to learn to read, then teaching students one, two, three is not reading, nor is three-letter words or four-letter words reading. Reading is when you have to be able to read really complex stuff, okay? So the Eightfold and Noble Path is, in fact, like that. So the beginner, for the beginner, is not actually noble, but eventually the purification of the mind leads to the fact that now the mind is noble. And so we'll talk about noble right view um, soon, but the important point now is to understand that our first right view, our beginner's right view, is that it is better to practice meditation and get a little bit clean than it is to stay stuck in the ordinary world. Right? That's, that's right view. Let's because without that right view, then we're not even going to practice sati, and we're not even going to practice um, uh, right effort nor uh, right attitude. So right view comes first. And not only that, but it doesn't remain lagging behind. That right view catches up with the other uh, uh, skills as they're developed. But the primary skill, the number one skill that needs to be developed is sati. 
Sati is the number one skill to be developed. We need that, and so we practice Anapanasati to be mindful of the breathing. We use that as the beginner's tool to take a deep breath. But wait a minute, it's not necessarily the beginner's tool. It remains the tool for the beginning of every moment. Every moment when we remember, we take a deep breath. That remembering to take a deep breath is in fact anapanasati. Remembering you take a deep breath. To take a long, deep in-breath and a long, deep out-breath. And this is the basic way that we get started. With Anapanasati means I remember to take a deep in-breath. By doing so, we're already doing other aspects of Anapanasati a little bit. One is to examine the mind. We had to examine the mind to see whether we even watching the breath or we had the mind wandered away. And when we bring it back to the breath, we bring it back with right effort. But we want to change the attitude or change the mind's content. To change the attitude, we change the content, and this is what we mean by gladdening the mind. We actually need to change the mind from whatever it was doing before into these two things, is taking a deep breath, and lightening up, brightening the mind, gladdening the mind. You can think of it as relaxing the mind by throwing out whatever was in there. The Buddha, in fact, had the, uh, uh, the words he used was, Aha, I see you, Mara. And that Aha, I see you, Mara, is in fact a gladdening of the mind because now we pull the mind out of the Mara, out of the bad habit or out of the bad feeling or out of the thought that was uh, unpleasant. Now, when it's a feeling, a big one, then it grabs us and owns us even if we don't recognize it. An example of that is the, the language, I am angry, or I am sad, or I am frustrated. What that means is, whatever it is that I am, the anger's got it. The anger owns it. But if we can wake up to see that, then we can pull out and say, aha, I see you, anger. And we disassociate, and now we are no longer the anger. We recognize that these feelings are not me. And so we practice knowing that whatever I'm feeling is not me that's feeling that. It's just a feeling that comes out of the reptilian part of the brain because it's not being well taken care of. So, this is the way to begin to practice, is to recognize thoughts and feelings are not me because I can change it immediately. I can wake up immediately. I can change it from I feel bad into, well, I see that I was feeling bad, and now I don't have to feel bad. I can feel good instead. And as we practice that, that's right effort. The right effort is to take a deep breath and relax. 
And as we take a deep breath and relax the body, we take a deep breath and relax the mind over and over and over again until it begins to feel good. This is, in fact, we relax into a state of satisfaction. The Pali word for this is sukha. Sukha is exactly the opposite to the word dukkha. So dukkha naroda is, in fact, sukha. We come into a state of pleasantness. We come into a state of satisfaction. We come into a state of relaxation. Now, there's something interesting about that, and that is, is that it, this is one of those things, one of several, many, in fact, 14 and exactly, <laughs> 14 items that are skills that need to be developed to train the mind into being satisfied. How do we train it to be satisfied? Well, number one, we need uh, uh, sati to remember and number two, we need uh, right effort to, to gladden the mind and to bring it into a state of satisfaction. And if we do this over and over again, then the body too, or actual emotional feelings, will come to a state of satisfaction. And this is an important point. This is when real sukha arrives is when not only is the mind satisfied but our the, the deep feeling part of the mind is also satisfied and so there's no anxiety no worries everything feels really really pleasant this is the state that we're looking for and when we arrive to that state we have to re, um, examine things in fact how we even got here was by investigation. We had to wake up and investigate. We had to see that the, the mind had uh, uh, wandered away. We had to uh, get the breathing going, see that it was going. We had to take up the effort. We know we were taking up effort. So all of this is an investigation too. So we're investigating everything along the way. And the last thing to do is to investigate, yes, I do feel satisfied. Yes, I do feel good. Yes, there is a pleasant feeling. Yippee! Yippee! <laughs> Whippee! <laughs> there it is, I've got it! And so this is the way that we practice, only today I've taught it in a more formal sense, starting with the Four Noble Truths, and then the Eightfold Noble Path, especially the part of the path, but we'll continue on talking about the path. But the important thing today is to recognize how these four uh, items of the Eightfold Noble Path are to be practiced over and over again, and the technique that we're using to do that is called Anapanasati. But the sati is the, is the primary item here. Sati is the big one. Sati is the one we have to remember and to remember and to remember and to remember over and over and over again. And one of the things that I can tell you about sati is, is that it's like Murphy's Law. What's that? Murphy's Law 
is, uh, and in fact, this law, when they understood it correctly, revolutionized not only NASA, but industrial way of doing things. Okay, here's what we mean by Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So we've got to make sure that we build things so that things can't go wrong. They can't get plugged in at the, in the wrong way. Because why? The, the third part of Murphy's Law is, is that things will, in fact, go wrong at the worst possible moment. An example of that was when do people uh, uh, blow fuses and things like that. It's when they plug things in backwards your cell phone and so they have tried to manufacture that little uh, USB connector so that it cannot be put in upside down because if it could be put in upside down it would be put in upside down right and things get reversed and things blow up so we have to uh, build our, our way of doing things so that things can't go wrong but sati is like that, so we need to build up the kind of sati so it won't fail us when we need it most. Mm -hmm. The very time when we need it most is when dukkha, big dukkha, comes and crowds us out, takes us over. And we need to wake up to that quickly. Mm -hmm. The quicker that we can wake up to it, the better we can handle the situation, whatever it is. Okay, so this allows us to uh, avoid suffering a lot because we have enough sati to put our mental foot down in a different location other than right flat on that cow pie. <laughs> we can begin to see things coming. We begin to use wisdom. We begin to watch where we're going. And that watching is, in fact, the key element of it is to remember to watch. The watching itself is quite a bit easier once we learn how, but sati is the skill that needs to be developed over and over and over and over again to remember, to remember. So this is primarily why we have this uh, craze in the West of uh, mindfulness meditation. The mindfulness, in fact, is the sati to wake up, to keep waking up. This is an, a key ingredient to it. Except that uh, mindfulness is a little bit different, the word mindfulness. In fact, I never heard of the word mindfulness until I heard of Buddhism. There's several words that have crept into the English language we call English that are not English at all. <laughs> Sati is a better word to use. That's the Pali. And it literally means to wake up. That's what it means. It means to wake up or to remember to wake up, or to remember to see what the mind is doing, to remember to investigate. As it were, wake up and smell the coffee. Or another way of saying it, wake up to smell whatever there is that's happening with the odors right now. And to wake up, you know, in general. To wake up, that's the whole point, is let's see what's going on. Let's do an investigation, but we can't do the investigation until we remember to do it. So sati is the first skill to be developed. Along with that is right effort. 
We'll talk more about right effort next time. Let's talk about just skill of sati, to keep remembering, to keep remembering, to keep remembering. And in that regard, we're going to brighten the mind. We're going to get a good attitude and we're going to take a deep breath. And that's that's the way of getting started. And that will give you great results. And we'll give a little bit more of the underpinnings and and, uh, rationale and reasons why. But in that regard now, we're talking about these steps of the Four Noble Truths because that's these four items of the, of the Eightfold Noble Path, right sati along with right view and right um, effort and right attitude, that's what brings about the unification of mind. Mm-hmm. That's what brings about the noble mind. So the first thing to understand is when we're practicing Anapanasati, the main thing that we're practicing is this method, this Eightfold Noble Path, and that we're using Sati or Anapanasati as the vehicle for practicing these four qualities that are on the Eightfold Noble Path. To wake up, to take that effort to gladden the mind, to take that effort to take a deep breath, to wake up, wakey, wakey. <laughs> <laughs> and to feel good. And then to become satisfied with feeling good. And so we change our attitude. Our attitude is a can-do attitude. It's not a loser's attitude. It's a winner's attitude. The attitude is, yes, I can wake up. Yes, I can clean out the mind. Right then I cleaned it out. can take a deep breath, can get the mind active and going. So that's the attitude that we build. And so that leads us to the point that everyone, every human being is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be sitting on top of it? This is what the word uh, in Pali means, uh, um, lokatara. Lokatara means, we we translate it as supramundane, but the mental image I want to give you of lokatara, we can call it uh, sitting on top of the world, or sitting on top of our own pile of dirt. We're above it all. That's the attitude, the attitude of the winner, the attitude, I can manage this pile of dirt. That I'm not stuck in it, or I'm not it. That I'm above this pile of dirt. And the pile of dirt, what is that? It's our whole past. Everything about us. The body, the feelings, the perceptions, the uh, memories, the way we see things. All of that kind of stuff is not really who we are. Who are we? Well, I don't know, but we'll call him the emperor or her the empress. <laughs> the one who's the charge, the one who's the boss, the one who has learned to control the breath, then learned to control the thoughts, and then learned to control the feelings. And we can do that. 
so that we can feel the way that we want to feel, think the way that we want to think, and breathe the way the body needs to be breathing. So that's the practice of Anapanasati, and it's also um, the practice of the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Path, which then packs back up into Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. So all you're left with is, all you have to do is remember to look at the Dukkha and step out of the way. Take a deep breath and relax. This can be practiced any place. You don't have to squat on the floor. But it's good to take the opportunity at uh, several times a day, in fact, uh, to, to have the intention that I'm going to sit and I'm going to practice sati. To keep watching the breath and watching the breath and watching the breath. Um, uh, do you already have a practice developed? Yes, I've been doing 40-minute sittings, just once a day. Okay. Um, rather than adding or subtracting from that, I would also suggest that you take an additional 15 minutes a d twice a day. Okay. Okay, so that you have three sittings for a while, and then later we'll do more because sati is something that we need to be developed so that it's there whenever we need it, not okay. just when we're on the floor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. okay, so one of the ways that in fact you could do some of that time would be instead of doing um, uh, 40 minutes, you could do, say, 20 minutes and then take a 20-minute break and then do another 20 minutes so that the mind stays fresh. This exercise is to keep the mind sharp. But when we sit a long time, then much of the time that we sit, if we're sitting very long times, the mind gets dull and we practice with a mind that's dull. Yeah. So we want to practice with a sharp mind. Okay. And so it's better to practice more often. Sort of like uh, uh, with, with weights. Some people practice a little bit with very, very heavy weights. And then other people will practice with lighter weights, but they'll do more reps. Okay, this is the way that we're practicing. Let's not try to do the long haul. Let's get the mind straight. Let's get the, the sati developed. Okay. Do you have any questions? Let me see. Should I wait to meditate after eating? I would say offhand any time is a good time, but immediately after eating, a lot of the uh, the blood is going to be in the belly, not in the head. And so uh, what I would suggest that you do is to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. 
that if that's the time that you choose to sit, then watch closely to see uh, how is the sati, how is the investigation, do I feel really relaxed, or if the, if the tummy is burning and twirling and bawling, does that mean the brain is also doing the same thing? Okay, so this is the kind of stuff that I would look for if I were you, is to uh, do that investigation. Rather than saying, oh, don't do it now because uh, of the blood. That's like saying, mommy says you can't go swimming right after you eat. No, you're not going to drown. <laughs> but it is good to wake up, to check it out, to look at what you're doing. Okay. Does that answer that question? Yes. Okay. Anything so, else? Yes, with the two meditation, sitting meditation sessions of 20 minutes and 20 minutes, can the break be several hours or did you mean like sure. a short break? Sure. But you might in that several hour break want to take a five minute and plug that in someplace. Okay. okay. But in fact, what we're looking for is we're looking for uh, not necessarily to stop the sitting practice, but rather to expand it throughout the day so that we find more and more opportunities for sati. And we okay. will talk about that uh, later. But right now I'm just introducing to you the concept that sati is a skill to be developed several times a day. Here's, here's the easy way to talk about it. Let us say that somebody says, okay, I'm going to hour or meditate a day. And every day they meditate for an hour, and when they get up, they're finished with the meditation. It's doing all of its job for them. And then they say, well, that means that 23 hours a day, you're not doing meditation. That means 23 hours a day, the old habits are coming back and maintaining themselves. Mm -hmm. Which one is going to win? Mm -hmm. One hour a day of new habits or 23 hours a day of old habits that are already strong? <laughs> and so somewhere along the line, we're going to have to learn to start tipping that balance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the way that we begin to practice. But we still have to maintain that time when we're really intently curious. I can get myself into a state of really nice satisfaction. I can enjoy this. Okay, that's, we have to, uh, to practice with that because you're generally not used to it. Okay, once you get into that habit of practicing like that, then we, had, we need to do two things. One is, can we maintain it while we get up off of the, uh, the cushion? Or two, can we bring it on during the day? So this is the way that we look at it, but we still need to maintain that sitting practice. And that I also, if, if you can, I would recommend a retreat, or two or three. They're very good to get away from it all so that we can really focus the mind in getting 
uh, sati as a, as a definite skill going. Okay. Okay. All right. Is that enough? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'll see you in again in a few days. This is great. Yes, thank I hope you, you so much. Benefit. I hope to hear for, from you what you've gotten. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. Okay, see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.